So I think maybe you know him. I have this dear friend who lives right around the corner from the church where you and I saw VJ Iyer. I don't know if you ever met my pal, the painter Benjamin Rubloff, when you were in Berlin. Did you ever meet that dude? No. A middle-aged bearded Jew, like the three of us should walk into a bar in Berlin. <laughs> there would definitely, <laughs> definitely be punchlines there. Um, anyway, he told me that Philip Gustin, the painter Philip Gustin, yeah. he said something like, you know, when you're in the studio painting, there's like a bunch of people in there with you. Like your, your, your friends, your mentors, all of the painters from history, all of the critics. Yeah. And one by one, like if you're painting, they walk out. Yeah. And if you're really painting, like when you're really doing it, yeah. you walk out. Yeah. And I wonder, bearing that in mind, like, do you have an audience in mind when you write? No. I don't. I think Gustin's exactly right. That's uh, so beautiful. One by one, they walk out, and then you walk out. That's kind of like where you're, what you're trying to get to in a way. Is like you leave the room, <laughs> you know? Because like, yeah, you are just like a big problem <laughs> you know, when you're when you're there. And, yeah. uh, and, Fucking and, tell me about and, it. And, and that's that's like when we talk about transcendence. That's what you're transcending. It's like you're, you're transcending yourself, and it's, it's bundle of mishigas. But no, so I don't have an audience in mind. Uh, I guess when I'm looking back at what I've written, people come back in the room and look over my shoulder. You know, and they say this or that. You've, you've, uh, you've internalized those voices, those points of view. And they help kind of condition your imagination and your intelligence as an artist. That's part of who you are. And so you let them back in the room and you, and, and you entertain the, uh, what they're saying. And, and you listen to them or you don't by turns. You know? um, but that, that's kind of the revision process. Um, I think the, the experience that Gustin describes is, uh, is common to artists. So if I'm hearing you right, when you're sitting down and you're really doing it, all the people have left the room and it's just you. But once it's on paper and you're revising and you're, you're reading it, perhaps reading it over and over, it's okay if Seamus Heaney looks over your shoulder, maybe puts his arm around your neck and gently gives you a, a hug and an attaboy. Yeah, but more likely it's like... Uh... And those three syllables right there suck. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's more like, hey, kid, can't you put some more muscle in it than that? You know, uh, it's more like that. Is that specific to Seamus Heaney or is that basically anyone who stands over your shoulder? They're just, they're just critics and maybe they're encouraging you to dig deeper and yeah, they're kind of like you're. They're your fellow travelers, you know. They're the ones that encouraged you, not like in person. I mean, through their work, through your attention to their work, and the values that you find there, that you emulate, and uh, and so yeah, they're pushing you. And one of the things maybe you're doing is kind of testing 
lines and passages against what you locate in their work. You know, is it as good as that? Is it as good as that? You know? Yeah, you got to stack up. You know, I remember at least one occasion when you were living in Berlin, you and I visited a twee pub called Felsenkeller. Uh, yeah. It's that place love where, Felsenkeller. yeah, right? Like you and I were probably like the youngest people there, which is one of the things I love about that joint. And that's that bar where Jeffrey Eugenides wrote Middlesex. And then in this other Eugenides book, The Marriage Plot, which Pulitzer Committee be damned, I far prefer. A character in that book, I don't remember if it was Madeline who my daughter isn't named after. I don't remember who said it, but they said that books aren't about real life. Books are about other books. Josh, without giving a dissertation on semiotics, which I won't understand, <laughs> can you give some insight into how your poems are about other poems? In some sense, like every poem is not necessarily about other poems, but every poem contains some kind of thinking about poetry. You know what I mean? Like when you look at like a, a great painting, there's a level at which that painting is about paint. You know, it's about painting. And, um, and, and, and even like one of the things that you see as you look at modern art in the 20th century is the fiction of the illusion of like real life or the real world it starts to drop back and what comes forward to like the surface of the canvas you could say is something that's really gestural like what you're seeing is in a way like the mark of the painter's body painting like that's the record of it is that painting abstract expressionism comes out of that motive so there's some level which poems are about poetry and and so in that sense they're about all the poems that you've read and they're not just about the poems that you've read that you emulate that you valorize that you you know you absorb that you learn by heart it's also about poems that you think aren't very good that you think are wanting that you think fail that you think could be better. There's a, a whole kind of um, flip side to inspiration, which is like negative inspiration. You know, I can point to a poem, an early poem of mine, for example, uh, that came directly out of reading a poem by Seamus Heaney that I thought wasn't good enough. I thought, ah, oh, you can do better than that. He's really missing it. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, when one's competitive with the poets that one loves too. Somebody like Harold Bloom would figure that as a kind of site of, of agon, of a kind of um, Oedipal conflict or something like that. I, I don't see it quite with that mythology, but more of like um, seeing that, that, that somebody that you, really, that, you, that you really admire kind of set the bar a little too low and just saying to oneself, you can set that bar higher and you can clear that bar. Go show them. Yeah, you know? I like that. Uh, but, but in another sense too, uh, 
the world of poetry and of like what I call kind of real poems, it's like an echo chamber, uh, maybe more than novels even, uh, because it's about song and snippets of song get picked up and played. And, you know, it is like jazz, an original tune that contains uh, an allusion in a couple of bars to another tune by someone else. It's like you're paying homage and kind of joining and um, making space in your work for that other sound, you know, which you hope is now also one of the materials in your sound too. Uh, so that kind of elusiveness, you know, that, that's that's something that that you strive to find a way to honor, to include, to like kind of make part of like what you're part of what you're doing. Yeah, but the the idea of poetry comes out of poetry. I mean, I never would have gotten the idea to write a poem if I hadn't read a poem that I really loved. Now, where would I have gotten that idea from? It only comes from poetry. So novels come out of novels and poetry comes out of poetry. And you can trace that genealogy back and get to kind of a mythology of originary points uh, where poetry and and fiction are just kind of one thing and nobody even thinks of it as art. It's just part of tribal practice. It's just, it's, it's living with the gods and, and living in nature and, and surviving. Yeah. Yeah. It has nothing to do with art. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Poetry comes out of poetry. We're all talking to the gods and we're all kind of standing on the shoulders of giants and it makes me think about this, and I'm not sure if you want to dive into it, but you also translate poems. And I know that rather recently, you published a book of poems by the Nobel Prize winning German poet Nellie Sachs. Uh, in full disclosure, my daughter often plays in Nellie Sachs Park in Schöneberg. Mm. And every time I monkey around on the monkey bars with her in Nellie Sachs Park, I think of you fondly. Sweet. So I want to hear you talk about translation, but I also, now that I'm thinking about it, I have to ask you this first. What does Berlin mean to you as a poet and a person? This is really weird, but Berlin is like my spiritual city. And that's a surprise. <laughs> I mean, I had never been there before 2012. Uh, I got this um, fellowship that the poet, the American poet, Amy Lowell, she set it up to send an American poet out of the country for a year. That was like the only, the only stipulation was you could go anywhere you wanted, but you couldn't come back to North America for a year. It was a great idea. Came out of it in a way like just her intuition that American poetry, whatever that is, would do a lot better if American poets got out of America. <laughs> and uh and so i got this thing and 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 for different reasons uh we landed in berlin in my family and and that's how you and i met and i was just really taken with the city it's not like a um like an immersive aesthetic experience like being in rome or paris uh or london or new york uh, it's much more difficult place than that 
because of its dark histories, uh, because of because of the histories of German aggression, uh, because of me being a Jew, uh, and it being like one of the being one of the places where where the quote unquote final solution was engineered. That makes it all a hard place to be in one sense. But here I am, Weiner. I have a German surname. And there's some aspect of my own person or personality that just, I don't know, just, I just felt really at home there, really felt at home with Germans in Berlin. And I think Berlin is obviously a different place than other places in Germany. It's like New York in that sense, um, or, or Chicago to the Midwest. It's like, it's of it and it's kind of separate from it too. You know, there's something else happening there. But I just don't feel as at home in any other city. And I don't really know why, why that is. So, so, so there's that. Uh, and there's a part of me that really does believe in the truth of these serendipities. For example, that when we moved to Berlin for 2012, 2013, we lived in Schoenberg, where Nellie Zacks was, was born and spent the first years of her life in a building that's marked with a plaque that I walked past like six times a day at least and never really noticed, <laughs> never looked up and to see that black. Yeah. And I didn't see anybody else looking up to notice it either. And then to find oneself uh, some years later, really focused on trying to bring her book, Flight and Metamorphosis, into kind of new English version. That's just kind of serendipity. It just does not feel totally like an accident. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm shy to describe it any further. You know how you once described Berlin to me, and I have totally commandeered this. And on occasion, I will give you credit for it, but I'm really not that generous most times. You had said to me once, merely in passing, and of course, this is one of the privileges of hanging out with a poet on occasion. You, you said to me, Berlin is like one enormous Holocaust memorial that turns into a rave at night. <laughs> Go you. Yeah. So let's get to it then. You, you have this serendipitous encounter with Nellie Sachs and you've translated a number of works. I just wonder if you can talk a bit about the work of poetry translation. Well, there's one part of it that's kind of funny. I mean, when somebody says, what are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm working on a poem. You just feel kind of like a jerk. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean you're working on a poem? But if somebody says, what are you doing? You go, oh, well, I've been translating um, a book of poems from German into English. Now that sounds like respectable work. <laughs> I mean, you must be putting your education to good use if you're doing something like that. 
So um, <laughs> I'm being only uh, I'm being three quarters facetious. No, you're describing but, um, to me like a perfect scene in a Coen Brothers movie that doesn't exist. <laughs> well, part of it is, I mean, translation's about um, it's kind of about finding your family in the poems in other languages and spending you know quote unquote quality time with them really listening to them finding out like who they are what they do and what their world is about it's intimate work and it's a way in which you're kind of devoting yourself to making that poem your own and um there's no translation that's capricious it's real hard work there's no translation that's capricious not if it's re- not if it's real. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of mundane translation. I mean, I um, I'm friends with poets in Berlin who make their bread translating legal documents for companies. That is real expert translation. Uh, but that's not that's not what we're talking about translating poems. Um, that's a very u- kind of utilitarian form of translation. And and there's all kinds of machine translation and. I've got Google Translate as an open tab on my desktop. It's it's like never closed, right? And it can be helpful when I'm trying to make my way through um, the newspaper in, in German or whatever. And these things are really sophisticated tools. And um, it's a little bit like playing chess, you know? There's a philosopher, John Searle, who made a remark that you know, the fact that a computer can beat you at chess really calls into question the value of that activity. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, but yeah. another way of like another way of saying that is like we have no uh, we have no evidence that the, that the computer has any fun playing chess. Right. Right. You know, and that that that's kind of the, the difference. You know, uh, translating a work of art from one language into like a target language, like one's native language, you're really rewriting the poem so that your sense of what it does in the quote unquote original language happens again to some meaningful degree in another language. That's just a weird thing, first of all, to try to do. And Poetry really depends on this kind of work, on poets doing this kind of work. Mm. Hey, man, I'm super excited to get my paws on the Nellie Sachs book in the autumn. But you're already working on other translations. I can't help but ask, how did you choose to translate the work of the Flemish dandy Paul van Ostayen? We talked earlier for a moment about choices. Yeah. You made a choice here to translate Van Ostayen. Talk to me about that choice and what this person has come to mean to you. That's really a deeply personal story. Um, I have a nephew who was a really troubled guy. Uh, at one point, he dropped out of college and went to Europe to have his European adventure. And it lasted for a while. One of the places that he found himself for a time was in Belgium. 
And he had dropped into Europe knowing German and uh, therefore not finding it too big of a stretch to start picking up Dutch. And through the various experiences he was having in, um, in Belgium, he was introduced to the poetry of Paul van Ostein, a, a Flemish modernist who took part in a lot of the different movements, art movements of uh, around the turn of the century up through like the 1920s, Dadaism, Futurism, Surrealism, et cetera. And one of the long works that van Ostein wrote which experiments wildly with topography and using the kind of whole field of the page to do different kinds of um visual things with text and in a way that you know anybody who has read the italian futurists or the dadaists uh would would recognize uh, he, he wrote this work called occupied city and uh, my nephew brought it home with him, and at some point we were hanging out, and he was showing it to me. This was something that that he thought maybe he would try to translate. It had never been translated into English, and I had never heard of Paul Van Ostein. I got, got interested in him through my nephew, and that's where it sat for a long time. And my nephew came to a, a really bad end uh, he died uh, and some years after his death I turned to Paul van Ostein as a way to kind of re-enter that relationship that I had with him uh, which was not like an easy such an easy relationship but at the time when he was sharing his interest in this poetry with me, it was something that we could that we could share. And there hadn't been many things that, that we had shared up to that point. So it had a kind of power to me. And I started reading Van Ostein's work in translation with the idea of staying alert to something that would reconnect me with my nephew. Not necessarily in the poem Occupied City, which has since been really beautifully translated, but just somewhere, anywhere. And I found him. I found my nephew in this poem of Thanos and um, and it was a poem that's translated in, into English, but I could see that the translation, not that it wasn't good, it's just not a, how I was hearing the poem. And uh, fortunately, the edition I was reading was a so-called on-fast bilingual edition. So the Dutch was on one side, the English translation was on the other side. And so I could study the, the poem in its language. And because I have some German, I was also able to to parse it out um, and uh, and started working on on this draft of it. I then sh showed it to someone I'm friends with who's fluent in Dutch 
And uh, we went back and forth with a couple of drafts with um, her comments that were very, very helpful. And so the poem now is, has this kind of secret history for me. And all the translations that I do in a way have some kind of very personal history for me. Um, and, and that's the history of this poem that, that I ended up translating. It's called Village. And um, I don't really call it a translation. I call it a version. Uh, although it, it's, I think, sticks very close to the translation and I believe honors the, the spirit of it. Would you be... Should I read it? Would, yeah, man. Would you be willing to give it a read? I mean, right. since you told me the the history of it and the meaning it has to you, I yeah, I guess I should say only if you're comfortable reading it, please proceed. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm proud of it, actually. So I've given the poem the title Fan Ostian Village Aversion. In the night, a bat. Your breath doesn't depend on the breath of another. And you know this place, the people, house to house. At night, by a single light, the pastures perchance, and a tardy cow on the way, in the wedge cut by path and stream, empty like the village, like a boat anchored briefly. Dark water smacks the jetty, measured and stranger than a screamless murder. You know there is no face you can enter as you enter your own house. And everywhere you go, you only fumble at the surface of things. A mirror of your loneliness, measure of your brief journey. While I don't know what it must have been like or what it must have felt like to translate that poem, the poem itself strikes me as particularly problematic. And I want to ask you a question, which I fear might be a bit on the nose, but what can I say? I'm a bit of a brute sometimes. <laughs> What's the essential problem of poetry? Daniel, the essential problem of poetry is oneself. You know, the biggest grind, I guess, in a way, always is just dealing with the hungry ghost of the self that wants recognition, praise, fame, glory, acceptance, love, riches are not bad. You know, <laughs> all the things that poetry um, can't give you, um, but that one wants. And because one is a poet, one keeps trying to get through poetry. Um, but it's the one place that you don't feel the grind is when you're writing the, the poem. It's like the best way to cope with the problem of poetry is by losing the self in the writing of, of the poem. So that's the essential problem. And then there are all these other kinds of problems that have to do with like technical stuff, like language, 
and poetic form and and can you get at the essential experience can you capture the moment can you devise the structure you know can you work with the language to make those combinations of sound and meaning that can create in another person what you're seeing and feeling but those are not essential problems those are like technical issues they're at, they're at the heart of the problem but not the it's not the essential problem getting out of the way yeah being there being there and then getting out of the way be here now now get out where else can you be <laughs> where else can you be but here yeah you know but it's like okay you are here now. You don't have to be here now. You are here now. So now that you're here, now that you recognize that you're here, what are you going to do? Yes. That's really the essential problem. Scream it from the mountaintops, my friend. <laughs> I think that there's this mythology around the poet. You know that there is a mythology around the poet what do people get all wrong about being a poet? Put another way, what do you wish people knew about the practice of poetry? Mm. It's available to everyone is one thing. It's hard work, but only in the sense that like playing with your toys was hard work when you were a kid. <laughs> And if you don't like it, it doesn't really matter. There seem to be lots of people out and about who don't care a whit for it. And they seem to be really happy. They're probably getting whatever it is we call poetry from some place that they don't necessarily think of or recognize as being poetry, for example, popular music good stuff that's on the radio and, and available to stream and, and, and such. People say they don't like poetry, but they like a lot of stuff that actually contains poetry. You know, so it's, it does have something in it that everybody maybe really needs. And, and they, they find it regardless of what they call it. I don't know. It, you know, poetry kind of takes care of itself. It doesn't really need any boosters. It's great to have programs that introduce kids to it that they might not have otherwise that helps sustain it and extend it. But as long as we have a language, it's like here for us. How cool is it to be able to make art out of something that is right there that you use every day for all kinds of things, you know, but to do something totally gratuitous with that is different, that kind of puts you in touch with some dimension of experience that you can't access otherwise. How cool is that? You don't need anything. All you need is, uh, you don't need, you don't even need really a pen or pencil or paper. You can just do it in your head and remember it. Yeah. It's 
a great thing. And it's nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So part of your work is creating a more public space around poetry. And part of what you do is to share with people your poetry and the poetry of others. And one of the forums in which you do that is the university. You're a professor of poetry. And I wonder how your interactions with your students informs your work. One of the funny ways that it informs what I do is that is that I have to remind myself to take my own damn advice. <laughs> you know, yeah. In in the graduate or undergraduate workshop, you're looking at drafts that poets are are writing and and bringing into share, and um, everybody is offering comments, and and I'm offering you know my thoughts and my comments too, and occasionally I'm then back at my own desk working on something and banging my head against the wall. And I have to remind myself that, hey, you already offered a suggestion of how to move forward with what you're working on when you said that thing to that student, like yesterday, you know, take your own damn advice. And so it's practically useful in that sense, in your work with students, you externalize a lot of your thinking you actually get to hear yourself say stuff. And and then to think twice, three times, four times, like, is is that worth saying? Is that valuable? Is that appropriate, given what this poet is trying to do, et cetera? Um, so that's one way is that it's like a it's a it's a it's not a mirror really, but it's a kind of dynamic that reflects back to you some of your own principles and thoughts about how to go about doing this thing in a, um, in a way that that's good, that works. And then you got to stay sharp for those poets that you're working with and the literature students too, that you're working with, you got to stay sharp. And, and that means you know, you're responsible. You're responsible for knowing what's in that poem and being able to articulate a point of view about it. And knowing something of uh, the history of it too, like what are the conditions out of which it was it was written? Like where did it, where did it come from? Not just in terms of the poet and their life, but all the the different kind of historical circumstances that came together to create the conditions out of which that poet wrote that poem or those poems. So it keeps one sharp. You keep learning. You keep learning stuff that you thought you know that you forgot that you knew. And so there's a way in which teaching is a as a real personal part of the practice that's kind of nutritional. But yeah, it has a downside too. It takes a lot of time. And I'm pretty lucky in that I get to st- strike a balance between the time I have to myself in the quote unquote studio at my desk working on poems and and the time that I, I go to campus and, and work with poets enrolled in the graduate program and and the undergraduates too. And, but, but there are these thresholds, there are points in which like one's kind of giving more than one's getting. Uh, And that's just part of the work, you know, 
you, you try to, to restrike the balance when that happens. And then there's just sharing what one loves with other people and hearing them get excited about, about it too. And then asking them about what they love that you didn't know anything about and getting excited about what they're interested in. Every semester that I teach, I'm reading stuff that I've never read before. And I'm learning stuff that I never knew before. So in terms of like my interest in continuing to grow and also just my curiosity, it's a real integral part of, of what I do. It seems to me, man, that what you seek to do as an instructor is to provide an empathic and empowering space like a nurturing space and maybe even a healing space for your students, because it is indeed the case that art heals. And I want to know, how does the art of poetry heal you? I think there really, I think there probably is something, I feel it, that is healing in some way embedded in certain rhythms of poems that I might go back to. Just the way that in a certain mood, uh, in a certain frame of mind, I might put on that Bill Evans, you know, to heal me. Uh, I think that's true about about poetry, and and someone looking at you know a Mark Rothko canvas might feel themselves soothed or healed in some way by entering in an immersive kind of looking into that that space that that painting creates. So that's one thing. Then there's also the catharsis of the, of the process of making art. I guess I'd say these parts of making art are what make living possible. And they don't really have much to do with whether anybody else thinks that like what you've done is good or has value for others or you know, enters into like the tradition of poetry in some meaningful way or anything like that, you know, that just has to do with process. Like what you do with your time, with your hands, with your abilities, with your experience, you know, with your memories, with the objects of your life. Um, it's healing in the sense that it's existentially just who one is. It's not mechanistic. It's an organic result of an organic process that takes place 
in an organism called Lazar or Weiner. It's just human. I think it's healing for humans to do human stuff. It's like healing to make art. It's healing to to exercise, to like use the body in a way that feels good. It's healing to to have sex. It's healing to eat meals with friends. You know, all these things are are healing. And I just think making art is just one of those things. Yeah, man. I think so too. And I think you come to that as a result of a great deal of wisdom. It's clear to our listeners that you're a wise man. And part of that has something to do with your willingness and your ability to be introspective. And in the spirit of introspection, I wonder how your thinking about your practice has evolved over the last, say, five to 10 years. You know, I do think that I became a much better teacher once my kids reached a college age. Uh, when I went into the classroom, the seminar room, the workshop room, and I saw students who looked like my kids, I became much, much more interested in them as people. And that kind of bridged a gap that I don't think I had ever bridged before. I think previously, you know, I was like, really cared about poetry. I really cared about the poems. And I, and I did care about the students too, of course, but it was probably like, I cared about the poems 70% and I cared about the students like 30%. And now I'm 58. I've been teaching full time for 20 years. I've got one kid who's out of college. I got another kid who's just started college. When I walk into the classroom now, whether it's a big lecture room or seminar room or a workshop, ah, poetry's going to take care of itself. I got to take care of these kids. You know, it's shifted now. I'm 60% interested in them. Or 70% interested in them, 30% interested in poems. And the poems become like a way for me to reach them. It becomes something for us to kind of do together. Uh, but I'm just much more caring about them and their experience, especially in the last 18 months. You know, it was so hard. And I teach at University of Maryland, I teach at, a, at, a, at the flagship campus of a big public university. And the hardships that I knew about firsthand were heartbreaking. Like, what's more important than leading with compassion in those situations? Like, wh who gives a shit about poetry? You know, if you can't connect with people in some meaningful way, it's a way for us to do something together that that's meaningful and. It's an opportunity for me to show them how this art form actually connects to who they are and what they're experiencing right now. 
and to create a space in which they get to kind of do something and and be in a way that they that's not available to them in their engineering classes and their criminal justice classes and their biology classes, you know. That's important to me now. It's like, what is the space of poetry for, for these people, these young people? So that's one way that my practice has changed over the decade. And I would just chalk it up to a lot of personal growth. Yeah. You know, I think in terms of writing, as I've entered into the practice of writing over like what are now decades, I'm always reminded by the poems that the really important questions have nothing to do with writing at all. Talk about that a little bit. I guess in a way, like I'm, I, I just said something abstractly that, that speaks to a lot of, of what we've been talking about. The writing is, is just a way of, of like being in your life. And dissolving some of the, the boundaries between practices in one's life, in my life, have been you know, useful, helpful to me. Like when are you not when are you not working on poems? Like when are you working on poems? The way it's like it's kind of all the same time. Yeah, I think about that with some frequency. In fact, that's one of the driving problems that I'm pursuing in this podcast. Right, like we've been fed this line about a work-life balance and everything's supposed to be so tidy, right? And some of, you know, my favorite people in history talked about eight, eight and eight, right? Eight hours of work and yeah. eight hours of leisure and eight hours of sleep. Right. And perhaps I was the fool who dogmatized all of that. And so part of this podcast is my effort to kind of recover from that fo foolish paradigm. Yeah. And now that I've been over the course of the last few years engaged in more robust and creative projects, it does raise serious questions about when the so-called work ends and if the work is really work when you don't want it to end. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I love thinking about my teaching in a serious way when I'm not teaching. And I love thinking about my podcast when I'm not recording or editing or somehow promoting it. You know, I love thinking about the songs that I write when I'm not writing songs. And it's just a bit slippery. Yeah. And it's just not tidy. Yeah. And you and I are okay with that. And I've evolved in that way over the last few years myself. That's my long-winded way of saying, I identify, J-Dubs. I identify. Right. <laughs> hey, man, let's start to drive this train into the station. All right. That was my uh, world-class professional podcaster transition. Was that pretty good? That was great. 
Yeah. Um, In order to do so, I would like to ask, it's kind of a weird question slash request, but I know that you'll deliver because you're good like that. Can you share with me one cultural artifact that somehow informs or embodies your practice as a poet? A poem, a song, a book, a painting, whatever, just like a cultural artifact that means something to you? And what does it say about how you do what you do? Maybe my favorite movies in the world are by the Indian director, Satyajit Rai, uh, what's called the Apu Trilogy, uh, which follows the the life of this boy from... uh, a small rural village into the city. And they're revolutionary movies. They're so full of life and so full of affection for these characters. Uh, They're so beautifully done. There's so much art in them and so much heart in them. Uh, And one of the guiding thoughts that Sashijit Rai shared at one point when he was asked had to do with how he thinks about this, the subject of his films. And, he, and he's made all kinds of movies in, in all kinds of ways. And they're all great. But what he said was, you know, if your theme is big enough, you can put anything into the movie and it has a place there it like has a has a role to play it's in, integral to like w- what the thing is and when you watch this the the, the first film in the opera trilogy path of panjali it takes place in this like small village you might see like 15 seconds of of water striders hanging out on the tensile surface of a pond or rushes blowing in in the wind or a train going by and these kids who just run out to the train to just watch it go by. Uh, Or you might see like a, a snake just slide through an abandoned room. You know, it's just like life. Like if your theme is the life, you can really put anything you want into what you're making and it has a role to play there. It just reminds me about the size of like what we're trying to do. You know, the scope of it, the the framework. You can just keep opening it up more and more broadly until you know the boundaries just dissolve and that's what i think i'm after just want to connect in some authentic way with the reality of one's existence and there are these ironies of course that one somehow discovers them and gets closer to them through 
these objects, as we're calling them, that someone else made. And that's what art is. It sure is, man. It's all about connection. And it's been such a pleasure to connect with you. And I'm wondering if you would be so kind as to suggest to me someone else I should connect with for this podcast. It could be a person that you know that you think would enjoy doing this. Or more broadly speaking, a profession that you would like me to dive into so that you as a listener could learn more about it. Mm. I've always wondered what it's like to be the engineer driving one of the metros. Dude, I'm already on it. It's already <laughs> happening. No, for real. That's great. Yeah, you'll hear more about that. Awesome. Hey, man, I've already asked way too much of you. But listen, J-Dubs, if there's one thing we both know about me, I, I am nothing if not greedy and entitled. So can I just feign humility here and appeal to you kindly to take us out on an original Josh Weiner poem? And maybe if you would, something fresh and clean and maybe still has some wet paint on it. I've got something. So, you know, the cicadas are back. The 17-year cicadas. Yeah, Brood X is back. 17 years, and they have taken over. So if you live in Washington, D.C. and around here, this is one of the hot spots, one of the, like, the, really, the areas of, of real condensed cicada presence. And that's one of the things that we're talking about, cicadas. Oh, my God. I just pulled it up on Google. Sweet Lord. It's wild. And... In a kind of exuberant mood, I dashed off a, a kind of poem thing to a friend of mine who lives in Berlin to tell her about the cicadas. And it ended up turning into like a real poem for me. Uh, so that's the most recent thing I've got. And like you say, the paint is wet on it. Not many people have seen it. I have hardly read it aloud myself just as I was composing it. So I'd give it a shot. I'm going to call it a for living exclusive and then feel wicked proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the poem is that it's a, it's a postcard. So it's just like jotting. There's a kind of speed to it. And, and my friend's name is Suzanne. She lives in, in Mitta. It's called Postcard to Suzanne. The cicadas are back in D.C. 17 years hiding underground, getting ready, feeling it, tunneling from tree roots they feed on to our common blaze, emergence aerating the soil, riching it up. At first a surface grounded click clicking, then wings dried, they lift themselves, flying so slow and stumble buzzy. You can see birds gain on them from behind, pick them off mid-flight. But there are too many, billions in an acre. They overwhelm simply with the instinct to satiate all predators past appetite. 
harmless, benign visitors, jolly, fat, juicy hangers-on in maple, elm, oak. They splash around the leafy crowns like summer kids, jumping off a float anchored to lake bottom. Five-eyed, fire-eyed, black thorax soak up the sun. They don't need camouflage. Come get me, who cares? Trillions of same difference. Such clouds of them show up even on weather radars. Now in their second week, boinking and clinging, they've changed their tune from fast, vibrating, timble-screaming diesel train to an eerie, pulsing whir, like a Boeing 737 refusing to land. The decibel pitch may be too high to hear over there on Tucholsky Strasse. But if you go outside and look up, I also am looking up, looking up as the Japanese poet Zozeki looked up 600 years ago in his poem for Ko, who has come from China. Look, Washington and Berlin, but there are not two skies. Josh Weiner, my friend, I am but a jolly, fat, juicy hanger-on. But you, sir, you make me all stumble-buzzy. This, <laughs> this has been more than a pleasure. It's been a bona fide romp. I can't thank you enough for being here with me. Daniel, I miss you. It was great hanging out. And talking about me, <laughs> I, I, I really loved spending the time getting the chance to talk to you about Poetry Man. It was really special. Thanks. Thanks, man. It felt special to me, too. Hello? Josh, Daniel Lazar here. Hey, man. Hey. <laughs> I'm not sure if I told you this when we recorded our conversation, but I'm chasing this vision I have to compose and record a song for each podcast episode this season. And after our conversation, I found myself thinking like three things, okay? The first thing I've been thinking is about how much I appreciate our conversation. I reflect on it frequently and fondly. I learned a ton and I'm wicked grateful, man. It was a total joy. Now, secondly, I find myself thinking about the challenges and the opportunities in translating poetry. Mm -hmm. You know, I won't dive into all my amorphous thoughts here and now, but I find that particular work profoundly interesting and i know you do too yeah but like lastly and like most overwhelmingly here i've been thinking like how the hell am i gonna muster the moxie to write a song for a poet yeah you know listen i try to navigate this whole mess with a heaping helping of humility and who the hell am i to write lyrics for a poet you know for christ's sake you're the poet I'm but an imposter. So I got to thinking then about writing a song based on a poem that you translated. And then I hit the interwebs. I was studying your work. I came across a poem by Osip Mandelstam that you translated in 2019. Yeah. That poem really grabbed me. Clearly it grabbed you too. So that's why I got you on the horn. Josh, can you do me a favor? And just tell me a little bit about Osip Mandelstam 
and what he means to you? Um, sh- I try. So Mandelstam is one of the great poets of 20th century Russia, and um, he guys he's a he's a, he's a giant, you know. Uh, within Russian poetry, you know, he's in the pantheon, and and one of the things you find when you, you go to his his poems, you, even in translation, which can never even get close to the kind of um, formal density and dexterity and and verbal virtuosity that are um, a, a mark of Mandelstam on the Russian language, but a lot comes through even in translation. And and part of it has to do with this really intense kind of tension that Mandelstam lived. I mean, he was totally sympathetic with the Bolsheviks. And then when those guys took over the country and were demanding that writers and artists kind of get with the political program um, of communism he found himself on the outside of of those commitments i mean his sympathies he was really like a humanist and he became associated with um with a movement in russian poetry called acmeism which was kind of rebelling against symbolist mysticism that was dominating russian poetry at the time and it's kind of regrounding Russian poetry in the here and now and the real. And this put him on the outside of things. And he didn't, he didn't accommodate, he didn't capitulate. And he ended up really paying the ultimate price for that. And um, this, this poem that I've translated, I call it, I, I don't really call it a translation. I call it a version because to me, that's what it is. It's like a version of the poem in English. Uh, it's from a sequence of poems called the Voronezh uh, Notebook that Mandelstam wrote between like 1935 and 1937. Things were getting really bad for him at this point. He had pissed off Stalin. He was living in internal exile uh, in the city of Voronezh. And he, he wrote these poems. They didn't do him any favors with Stalin, and they eventually led to him being arrested, and that led to his death in a transit camp in 1938. So this poem really hit me when I was reading a, a new translation of the Voronezh Notebook. It hit me because it was like he was writing a poem directly about right now. Yes. Uh, especially the now that we just kind of lived through with Trump. Uh, I could hear the poem, but I wasn't hearing it the way I wanted to hear it in English in the translation I was reading. That's kind of how you know that you, you've got a beat on um, a poem in another language that's kind of given to you to try to translate. It's like you hear it, but it doesn't exist yet. Hmm. So I, I thought I'd try my hand on it. I had I had some help by... Um, an uh, English poet living in uh, Berlin, uh, Alistair Noon, who is a, a translator of Russian poetry and um, and and Mandelstam particularly. Uh, there were a couple of like blurry areas um, in the the language work that I was 
I was doing, and, and he was able to to clarify a point or two for me. So I'm grateful to him for that. Um, I, I call it Mandelstam, Voronezh, 1935. The poems in the notebook are untitled. It's really just a kind of, it's a sequence, and and each each piece is dated. So this is a piece from June 1935. So I've been thinking about this poem quite a bit in that I've written a song about it. There's a demo. It exists. I don't have the heart to share it with you right now, but it's going to become a song, and I'm really optimistic about it. Would you be so kind as to give a reading of the poem for us? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, You're going to hear some stuff in the poem that, especially as it as it unfolds and kind of reaches its culmination that may lead you to think about, about Trump, about, about his wall, about those loyalists of his that were fiercely present in their corrupt kind of, um, uh, takeover of the media, uh, and then disappeared, you know, like John Kelly, Mike Flynn, Ryan Priebus, uh, remember it? Anthony Scaramucci. Yeah. Yeah. So, here we go. Mandelstam, Vronyesh, 1935. A wave. Another wave. Wave breaks wave with wave, rising to crest to strike the moon with the hopeless rage of a slave. Soldiers of a sea without depth. New city of waves without sleep digs its trench in the truth. And through shadows of foam and ash, you can see the swelling bulwark crash. Its battlements like teeth chewing the air where mistrusted loyalists disappear and stone-cold eunuchs deal parcels of poison under the sultan's wall of flesh. When you first came upon that work, what did it elicit from you? It grabbed me by the throat. Yeah. I mean, even in the translation that I was reading, it, it grabbed me. It, you know, the intensity of of its imagery and its immediacy. It's like, you know, you're, um, you're constantly kind of turning the radio dial, you know, like trying to tune in a station and day in, day out, you're, you're hearing a lot of static. And then every so often in your reading, you just, kind of tweak that thing a little bit and you get some signal and you don't know why it's like there aren't clouds in the air that day or something about the humidity or the amount of iodine in the air. (laughs) You just get like, you just get a really strong signal. It just comes through from, you know, 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, a thousand years ago across distances of time and place. And that's what happened with this one. 
I was just turning that dial very slowly. And then that signal just rocked in. Well, I had the same experience when I came across your version of the poem. And I recall it leaving a starkly metallic taste in my mouth. Yeah. 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 And then I thought, you know, do I want to live with this for the foreseeable future? Right? Like write a song about it. Have these words pass my lips time and time again. Right. And then I thought about agency. Yeah. And I've spent a fair amount of time with these words. Yeah. And I still, when I'm playing the song the way I want to play the song, yeah, I still get that metallic taste. Yeah. The truth is cold. Yeah. That's part of it. And he's not kidding around, you know? It's cold. It has, it has that, that acid taste to it uh, that makes your, your teeth kind of, you know, sit up in your head as it were. And um, it's not a good taste, but it's real. Yeah, it's definitely something to grapple with. And you grappled with it. I grappled with it. Despite the metallic taste in my mouth, it gave me yet another opportunity to think fondly about you and your work and our conversation. And so, like I said, I spent more time than perhaps I'm willing to admit quietly reading your work and much like must have happened to you this poem shrieked at me like a tornado warning and then when i learned about osip mandelstam's story i knew i had to live with this particular work for a while yeah and having given it some thought i sat down with my friend and producer in berlin brian trahan And we pursued a couple of different structures and tones. Brian and I recorded this demo. And then when my wife got home from work, I asked her for the first time, actually, if she'd be willing to sing on the track. And it popped, man. It was was awesome. And I sent my piano and an electronic drum beat and... Megan and my vocal as a demo to two buddies of mine in Chicago that I've known for 30 years, Mark and Marty Kanjoka. And it's Marty Kanjoka on the drums, his big brother Mark on the horn. And we brought it all together. Trahan produced, mixed, and mastered the thing. The poem's a tough pill to swallow. The song's a tough pill to swallow. But I hope you dig it, man. That's awesome. I hope so. <laughs> it's great to hear your voice again, man. Thanks a million for coming back on mic with me and giving us further insight into Osip Mandelstam, into the poem Voronezh, and for teeing up the track that I'm going to play now. Here goes nothing, eh? Hey. Thank you. 
Rising to crest to strike the moon With the hopeless rage of a slave Soldiers of a sea without depth A new city of Yeah.